prospect lives. Seven Voices on Modern Britain. There's certainly a sense of making up for lost time. Understanding face blindness has reduced my anxiety. It is hard to keep above water. My particular crow is proving tragically stupid. We've all made mistakes. We're all here to learn. The sin of vanity is strong in me. Don't lose touch with the love of the game that led you to play it as a child. Welcome to Prospect Lives, our brand new podcast. I'm Alan Rusbridger, editor of Prospect Magazine, and I'm introducing our latest chronicle of disparate experiences of modern Britain by a new family of regular Prospect writers filling us in on what they're thinking about each month. We left our seven writers in June. Actor and writer Sheila Hancock was celebrating the long reign of the Queen, while Jason Thomas Vanillier, an expert by experience in the asylum system, was frustrated by Britain's broken bus system. Farmer Tom had just signed a deal to bring a robot helper onto his farm, while Anglican priest Alice Goodman was preparing for ordination season. This month, former England cricket captain Michael Bearley is inspired by England's recent performance under Brendan McCullum and Ben Stokes, while Gen Zer Serena Smith is gearing up for a revenge summer of partying and travel. Psychiatrist Rebecca Lawrence reflects on how her struggle with face blindness has impacted her life, while Farmer Tom reports from the Glastonbury of farming conferences. But let's begin with Jason Thomas Vanillier, who fears that the cost of living crisis will push many Doncaster residents over the edge. It's been a rough but interesting six months for me, appealing my asylum claim expanding my advocacy work and starting my own NGO in Doncaster. I've been so busy, I could do with a little me time. How about you? With the demands of a post-Brexit economy, a toxic political climate, rises in petrol and electricity prices, council tax, industrial strikes, inflation, and the war in Ukraine, you must be in a state of uncertainty. Being stateless, I feel this every day. When will the rug be pulled from under me and other asylum seekers? I felt especially anxious since the Rwanda policy was passed in Parliament. With no right to work and no increase in asylum allowance, it is hard to keep above water. Price rises in food, daily essentials and travel fares have made it hard to be frugal on £40.85 a week, and after speaking to others in the asylum community, such as families and people with disabilities, I have discovered that many people are struggling even more than I am. I have a friend who is an asylum seeker and a single mother of two living in Leeds. She has to visit multiple food banks each week due to the rise in food prices. When I speak to her, I can hear the uncertainty in her voice. She's trying so hard to keep it all together. When she talks about her kids, I can tell that their happy playfulness revitalizes her and washes away her stress temporarily. Here in Doncaster, we have an aging population. The price of household utilities and council tax has hit some of the older folk very hard. I have an elderly neighbour 
who lives on her own with a disability, who has had to cut back on her weekly expenditure and switch utility providers. The price hikes were too steep for her to keep up with the payments on her previous plan. Meanwhile, only a bus ride away, my elderly neighbor's son has had to sublet his two-bedroom flat as the escalating cost of rent has opened a highway into debt. Some other friends of mine have been forced into shared housing. I feel useless at times because I cannot help those around me with their basic needs, but perhaps these uncertain times are making me melancholy. And what about workers' wages? I wonder how a government can measure progress if it doesn't know how much people need to afford the basics. The minimum wage is too low. Watching my grandfather work in a market back home in the Caribbean taught me how much effort, skill and labour goes into producing our food, clothes and appliances and this deserves to be rewarded with a livable wage. To make matters worse, we have shut our doors to the millions of workers from Europe who kept our economy afloat. We have almost no fruit pickers for the summer season. In my opinion, when the government says it will be giving additional finance boosts to get the public through these tough times, what they mean is they are applying emergency ban aid and with this current government's record, I wouldn't be surprised if it even that will turn out to be a part of some Praetorian business enterprise. As Jason reflects on the strain that the cost of living crisis puts on people's mental health, Rebecca Lawrence discusses how her face blindness impacted her well-being. Earlier this week, I went to a conference. It was a big and exciting event, one of the first to take place face-to-face since the pandemic. Yet I found it extraordinarily tiring and stressful, largely due to the difficulty I had recognising people without the little name that used to float next to their face on Zoom. Face blindness, or to give it its proper name, prosopagnosia, is a difficulty in facial recognition that may afflict up to 2% of people to some degree. It can start in childhood, or be caused by later damage such as a stroke to a particular area of the brain. Like many, I had no idea that my problem had a name until recently. In fact, my incompetence, both at recognising people and following films, had merely been a long-standing source of irritation to my family. Some brief research online revealed that there is a link between face blindness and navigation skills which fits with my experience of having an embarrassingly poor sense of direction. According to the latest research, there are multiple potential causes of face blindness, including poor vision during important developmental periods, a familial genetic link or brain injury before birth. I wonder if mine relates to my severe short-sightedness from an early age. When I was young, children were discouraged from wearing glasses 
except when they really needed to. So the playground and my friends were always in soft focus. My parents thought this might improve my vision, along with endless eye exercises which proved fruitless. I did recognise people, but it was often from their hair, clothes or gait, and especially their voices. Very occasionally, I misrecognised my parents, which was disconcerting, but mostly I got along all right. By the time I got contact lenses in my early teens, it was probably too late. I'd largely stopped trying to recognise faces, and that lack of practice quite possibly inhibited the development of the relevant bit of my brain. I like looking at people, but I can't visualise a face once I've looked away, and I certainly couldn't draw one. This can cause significant problems at work, but I've adapted. I can cope with colleagues, since I'm familiar with their other physical characteristics, but it can be difficult with people I don't see regularly. If I'm concentrating, I will learn a defining feature like hair colour or glasses, and that helps. With patients, I don't want to upset them by not recognising them, so I usually ask one of the nurses to point them out. If anything, the latter are slightly amused by my deficiencies. Socially, it's more challenging. I often avoid events unless I know exactly where I'm going and that I will be with someone I know. I'm always anxious when I have to go out by myself to meet others, particularly when I don't know the people or the venue well. People will no doubt say, but surely you recognise your family. And yes, on the whole I do. I have three daughters of similar height who resemble each other, and I know whose piercings are situated where and how they walk. But sometimes they change their hair colour or steal each other's clothes, then enter a room and I temporise by calling them daughter until their voice gives them away. My husband is bald and tall. I spot him floating above the crowds and his clothes have a limited range which makes my life easier. Oliver Sacks, the late author and neurologist, famously spoke about his own face blindness. He apparently didn't realise he had it until middle age and always seemed to be wearing thick glasses. He also had difficulty finding his way around, and learning of his story was a eureka moment for me. Understanding face blindness has actually reduced my anxiety about not recognising people. I would describe my case as mild to moderate, and it's amazing what the human brain can adapt to. But I did rather enjoy Zoom. While Rebecca enjoyed virtual communication during lockdown, actor and writer Sheila Hancock's attempts to tame a tricksy mouse have wrought chaos in her home. During lockdown, my normal frantic life ground to a halt, and instead of fruitless busyness, I was forced into a stunned stasis. No rushing around meant that I had no choice but to observe and listen to where I was. Living under the Heathrow flight path, I heard the sound of planes every minute, replaced by strange twittering and quacking and cawing noises. Investigating the source, I became fascinated by the feathered creatures floating on the river, gliding in the empty sky and sitting on the rails of my balcony. Condemned to solitary confinement by my newly acquired extremely vulnerable status, 
I was grateful for their company. One particular strutting, hip-swaying, jaunty crow entranced me. If I used a special wooing tone of voice, he would stop, cock his ear in my direction, think about it, defecate on my expensive tiles and prance on. I became obsessed with winning his approval. I tempted him onto the table and then to stand by the door. My mission was to train him to the point where I could emerge back into the eventually virus-free world, elegantly flaunting a crow on my shoulder. Desperate for contact with living creatures, I also struck up friendship with a mouse. During the nightly programme of depressing bulletins with sober medical men giving us the facts, or Matt Hancock straining to remember the latest government misinformation, I would be comforted by the appearance of a little mouse in my kitchen. I used my soothing crow voice to say, hello, and I swear it would do a little pirouette before going on its way. I would not have been in the least surprised if it had turned up wearing a tutu. So far, so charming. But now, things have returned to normality. My newfound relationship with the natural world has gone sour. The animals are taking advantage of my friendship. Give them an inch. I am now besieged by fierce crows and fecund mice in my house. I decided to take a stand when a huge creature that I suspect is one of my mice evolving into a new breed of rat, ignoring my stamping feet, charged towards me, teeth bared. A slight exaggeration, but it was scary, forcing me to stand on my chair like a Victorian maiden. I wished my erstwhile friend no ill, so I consulted a well-known pest control company to evolve a humane method for bidding it farewell. They insisted on disinfecting the whole house, which they declared was infested and a danger to my health. Then they set up, at vast expense, a system where there is no poisoning or backbreaking. The mice just run into a slightly ungainly white box and go to sleep gently and painlessly. Then a man comes to remove the body. That is the theory or the sales pitch. The first night, I watched two mice come and momentarily look at the trap, then proceed to walk daintily around it. I tried laying a trail of cheese towards the little hole that they were meant to go in. They ate the cheese with relish, danced with several friends, and went home, wherever that is. So far, I have paid hundreds of pounds for the capture of one single, obviously very silly, mouse. When I complained to the mouse assassin, he told me that they are very intelligent creatures. I told him that I hoped he would be more intelligent than them. Three weeks on, the mice are still winning. Despite the reputation of being bright birds, my particular crow is proving tragically stupid. 
I have, on one wall of my balcony, cleverly installed a mirror to make it seem like an extension of the river view. One day, my crow caught sight of his reflection. He walked up and down, puzzled and hurt by this other crow not reacting to his noisy chat-up line. Every morning, as dawn broke, he would appear before the mirror, loudly summoning up his new friend. Receiving no satisfactory reaction, he started trying to kiss his sweetheart, then to peck her, and eventually to wage a full-scale attack on the mirror. On one occasion, he brought two other crows to help him, thrashing and clawing at the equally angry subject of his obsession. Alas, the only solution has been to cover the mirror, not just with paper or a curtain, which he summarily destroyed, but with firmly fixed cladding. So I am left with a gloomy balcony and guilt about a broken-hearted crow occasionally standing on the table looking at me reproachfully, forlorn and mentally disturbed, full stop. Everyone says, get a cat. I was given a kitten during lockdown, but could not deal with its energy with my dodgy back. Maybe I should adopt an elderly, homeless puss who hopefully won't outlive me. But would my wily mice and psychotic crow be too much for him as well? Sheila's not the only one facing animal-related mishaps, as Farmer Tom delivers a talk about his worst farming failures at an agricultural festival. I'm standing in a field surrounded by tents. There are hundreds of people around me drinking beer or coffee, laughing and eating from one of the food vans nearby. Smoke is drifting across the field, carrying the smell of roast lamb, curry, homemade pizza and open charcoal fires. Someone somewhere is playing the guitar and singing, easy like Sunday morning. But it's the evening of Wednesday the 22nd of June. I know you're thinking, I'm at Glastonbury, but I'm not in Somerset. I'm in Hertfordshire for the very first day of Groundswell. Part festival, part country show, part farming conference. It has a very similar atmosphere to Glasgow, but the stages host rather different acts. At Groundswell, scientists, environmentalists and farmers share their wisdom, or in my case, mistakes. For my presentation, or perhaps I should say my set, I decided to give a talk about my path from conventional farming into regenerative farming. Instead of claiming to be a guru, there are plenty of those, I shared pictures of the errors I've made along the way and explained what I'd learned about reducing tillage, increasing biodiversity and incorporating sheep grazing into our arable fields. The pictures weren't pretty. <laughs> I shared images of my fields flooded after I failed to correct drainage issues, of weeds outcompeting my crops and of soils compacted by the passage of sheep across them at the wrong time of year. Each represented a difficult time and a lesson learned. I asked some well-known farmers to share pictures of their own farm failures with me, and many replied with images from farms across the UK and North America. The hour-long seminar, which at 5.30pm I had assumed would be the graveyard slot, was enthusiastically received by a packed tent of farmers and food producers. The audience was in exceptional spirits, although some of the jovial atmosphere may have been attributable to visits to the stand selling local beer. But the vibe was of respect and not ridicule. We've all made mistakes, we're all here to learn. Now in its sixth year, Groundswell attracts thousands of farmers from across the UK and beyond. 
Over two days, hundreds of talks cover topics from composting, robotics, cheese making and the processing of wool, to managing veteran trees, dung beetle identification and even a moth safari. A standout session for me was delivered by an expert mycologist. His talk about fungi filled the tent to the brim with several hundred people sitting, standing, occupying any space possible in the 30 degree heat. It was refreshing to be with other farmers choosing positivity over negativity and proactivity over lethargy in difficult times. There was a palpable desire to work together to restore the countryside that we love and to bring to life our deep-seated, instinctive vision for a green and pleasant land. When I came home to the family farm seven years ago, half the people I spoke to said, what a bloody awful time to come into farming. The other half said, what a great time to come into farming. I know who I agree with. As Farmer Tom returns from Groundswell, Gen Zia Serena Smith looks forward to a summer of revenge travel. This time last year, I was buoyed up with excitement for the coming summer. Freedom Day was imminent, travel restrictions were easing, and my social media feeds were teeming with hot vac summer posts. On TikTok, there was a stream of hashtag summer goals videos featuring orange sunsets, campfires on the beach, and festival crowds with hands raised high. Summer 2021 was set to resemble an American teen movie. Classic summer events, both sporting and cultural, were back on the agenda. The postponed Euros were held in Wembley and Love Island was on our screens again. Olivia Rodrigo's Good For You was in the charts. I had my first dose of the vaccine. My group chats would ping every few days. Should we go to the pub or a festival or book a holiday? But expectations were so high that it's unsurprising that summer 2021 ended up falling flat. Football didn't come home and the black players on England's team were subject to vile racist abuse. Festivals were cancelled, COVID-19 numbers were too high to go clubbing guilt-free and the PCR tests required for travel cost more than the flights themselves. Love Island turned sour when Faye Winter screamed in the face of her partner, Teddy Soares, prompting almost 25,000 complaints to Ofcom. Even the weather seemed more dire than usual. Summer 2022 promises to be different. Famous last words, I know, but there are already positive signs. I went to Paris in June. It was my first holiday with my boyfriend, and it was perfect. We ate fluffy croissants in the mornings, drank orange wine in the evenings, and climbed up the hill near our Airbnb every night to watch the Eiffel Tower sparkle against the dark sky. I have two more trips in the pipeline too, one to Nerha with two friends and another to Parma with a bigger group. I can't wait to be under the beating Spanish sun, chipping away at my to-be-read pile and sipping a fun, fruity drink from the local supermarket. It's probably excessive to be going on so many holidays in such quick succession, but I'm not alone in doing so. So many people are taking advantage of the lifting of travel restrictions that a new term has been coined to describe the phenomenon, revenge travel. It's an apt phrase. There's certainly a sense of making up for lost time, underpinning the joy of being able to go abroad with my loved ones again. The pandemic is far from over, but there are moments when it dawns on me 
how much my personal life has changed in the last two years. It hit me when I was sitting in a Parisian bar, overlooking the city on a balmy evening. But it also happens when I'm doing something utterly mundane, like the washing up. Two years ago, a return to sociality felt like a distant dream. We wondered, did we really pack into humid clubs like sardines? Did we really kiss strangers? Did we really pass lipstick and drinks between us without giving it a second thought? I think this is just the new normal, my mum would say. No, it's not. It can't be, I would reply, scared that she was right. So I am relieved this summer to have my social life back. I haven't forgotten, and I doubt I ever will, how I felt in 2020. It's not lost on me as I write these words on a busy train on the way to see Diana Ross with friends that two years ago I would have given anything just to be sitting here. As Serena welcomes a return to face-to-face socialising, a snippet of overheard conversation prompts Alice Goodman to reflect on the clerical outfits that have defined her career. Recently, I heard one fashionable young clergyman say to another that a faded shirt is the sign of a faded soul. I hope that's not true, because if it is, things don't look good for me. Most of my clerical shirts need a spin with the dial-on velvet black, and a number of them need their collars turned. They'll see me out, though, with judicious visible mending. Which is to say that I'm done with clerical outfitting. But oh, what fun it was while it lasted, and how amusing it is to see, admire, and tut over the habits of the generations that came before me, as well as the newly ordained ones I've run into over the past few weeks. I was an evangelical at Cranmer Hall, my friend the Prebendary of St Pancras told me. So of course I went to J&M and got their cheapest cassock and a surplice and a black preaching scarf. What was the cassock made of? Some indeterminate black fabric, synthetic. Could you wash it? Oh, that would have saved a bit of money. Now I send all the evangelicals to be outfitted at Watts. I tell them there's no reason why they shouldn't be as smartly turned out as the Catholics. The Anglo-Catholic boys are going on holiday to Rome to order from Gamarelli's these days. I know, especially the ones from London and Chichester. But who made your cope that you wear in St. Paul's? That came out of the wardrobe. They've had a very short one. I had to get a very short cope too. I spotted it at a second-hand vestment dealer's. Luckily, it was affordable. Now I lend it out whenever there's a small priest in need of one. My beloved training incumbent, Owen Bell, is liberal and broad church. He wears a double-breasted cassock that buttons at the neck and at the waist and is held closed by a black leather belt. He was outfitted at Whipples of Exeter. I was ordained 15 years or so after the prebendary of St. Pancras and 30 years after Owen. I've got two cassocks, one for winter and one for summer, with 39 buttons down the front of each. No cheating with a zip or Velcro. I got them from J&M, who were very obliging about allowing me lots of pleats in the skirt. I also have an alb, the long white garment I wear over the cassock when I say mass. It requires a sort of linen antimacassar called an amice, 
which folds around my neck and shoulders and ties with long white tapes. It also requires a girdle, a long white rope to go around my waist. It would be simpler to wear an oatmeal-coloured all-in-one cassock alb, but I've never done so. The sin of vanity is strong in me. There's the surplice, which is the basic Anglican vestment. The cassock is medieval streetwear, much as my clerical shirt and jeans are now. And a square-necked pleated cotter for when I'm invited somewhere extremely high church. My offspring, when young, referred to them respectively as the nightgown, the angel, and the village idiot. And I have a black Melton funeral cloak, and that very short cope, which an unkind senior colleague used to refer to as Alice's Pocahontas costume. That's all before we get to the subject of the actual priestly vestment, the stole. I'm delighted and chastened, though, to recall how a couple of weeks ago I went over to Oxford to have lunch with my friend Jim Keenan, who was delivering the Darcy lectures at Campion Hall. How will you know him? someone asked. He'll be dressed like a Jesuit, I said. Sure enough, I saw Jim when he was still far off, walking rapidly towards me, dressed in casual slacks, a long-sleeved t-shirt, a baseball cap, and trainers. While Alice enjoys being all kitted out, former England cricket captain Mike Brealey celebrates the new aggressive attitude of the national team. Wednesday the 15th of June, 7.30am, overheard in the sauna at Parliament Hill Lido, North London, man speaking to friend. I don't like cricket, I hate cricket, but that match yesterday, Johnny Bairstow, I loved it. Watching the highlights, I even missed Midsummer Murders. A new game, a new attitude, indeed. But the man continued, just like Botham at Headingley in 1981. Botham was a unique talent, a man who was a frontline bowler, as well as a fine hitter, who could take a game by the scruff of the neck and turn it round. But most of that innings was played when it was plain that we had nothing to lose. The game was already, in all likelihood, lost. Trent Bridge, in 2022, was by contrast an indication of a broader metamorphosis, a game-long, series-long, whole-team reorientation. The new approach is, I believe, an overall shift in philosophy. New coach Brendan McCullum and new captain Ben Stokes, producers of modern sporting hardware and software, Bomber Bairstow. If England had had to get 409 in 63 overs, as opposed to 309, they might still have gone for it, and might well have got there. I think the new mission statement has many elements. One is, enjoy yourselves. Don't lose touch with the love of the game that led you to play it as a child. Another is, think of how things may go well, rather than be preoccupied with what might go wrong. Third, if you're positive with the bat, the bowlers may lose it, as New Zealand did when England scored 66 or five overs after tea. Then there's don't overthink, or rather, don't think too negatively. Baz McCullum urges players to 
avoid negative chat and praise small contributions. I guess it was this set of values expressed in words and demeanour expressed in words and demeanour that transformed Alex Lees from an ungainly, erratic, gawky player in the first innings of the Lord's Test to a batter who stood tall, eyes level, head still, transferring his weight onto the front foot to get maximum impact from semi-defensive shots and playing the shorter ball with the solidity of a Stokes. I even had images of him becoming a Bob Barber, another tall, strong, left-handed opener, who, a tall, strong, left-handed opener who radically changed his style from anxious defensiveness to forthright confidence and a determination to dominate whenever possible. I shared the feeling of the man in the Gospel Oak sauna. This was a fantastic performance. Relieved of the onus of being the main run scorer by a mile and captain of a struggling side, Joe Root has played more freely than before. I was delighted with the England batting, with their chutzpah and bravery, their dash and enthusiasm. The bowlers too have been prepared to risk a few runs in the search for wickets. But I also felt a tinge of depression after Trent Bridge. I also felt a tinge of depression after Trent Bridge. I think I wish that when I played, we'd been more positive a little more in the McCullum Stokes mode, a little more in the McCullum Stokes mode. As captain, I shared most of McCullum's beliefs, but when we'd fought a test match over four days, our attitude tended to be, let's make sure we don't lose after all this effort. Only if, when and while we felt safe from defeat, would we go flat out for a win. I wished I'd had more bravura. As captain in the field, I believe I was often to attack. As captain in the field, I believe I was often willing to attack when we could. At Middlesex AGMs, I promised po positive cricket. But similar to Geoffrey Boycott, I might say to the team, or convey without saying, think what the position will be if we add two wickets to our current score and the voice of self-doubt made me tense. New attitudes won't, will never, guarantee success and accolades. On the very day that Bairstow put New Zealand to the sword, spectators were booing Gareth Southgate during England's 0-4 soccer defeat against Hungary, despite all that he's done to lift the England football team. Memories are short, people turn. And sometimes we have to question our ra rashness. Sometimes we have to question our rashness. When Derek Randall excused himself for getting out for consecutive ducks playing the hook shot on the ground that it was his nature to play that way, our manager Doug Insull told him, if that's the case, you better think about your nature. Over the past few years, cricket pundits as acknowledgeable as Ted Dexter, who sadly died last year, have bemoaned the lack of solid defensive techniques in England's batting, except for Root. The underlying truths in many areas of life, including playing cricket, involve finding a balance that works between caution and risk, 
between sobriety and exhilaration, between mania and depression. England teams of the 1970s and 80s were, like the present England team, products of their time. Societal and cricketing values, though slowly changing, were not fundamentally different from those of Len Hutton's generation. Societal and cricketing values, though slowly changing, were not fundamentally different from those of Len Hutton's a generation before. Our generation were less readily bored than the present one. We hadn't been brought up under the influence of advertising slogans like take the waiting out of wanting. Nor was our attitude much different from that of most opposition teams. Again, apart apart, apart perhaps from the West Indies. We had no conception of the possibilities of scoring created by the shortest forms of the game. There were fewer test matches and much less international cricket, so perhaps each test had more significance in those days. Yet some of the most fascinating passages of play in recent test cricket have occurred when India's Virat Kohli was trying not to play at Jimmy Anderson, concerned only with seeing him off. These were sustained periods during which the balance between the sides pivoted. One needed to be cautious, defensive. One needs to be cautious, defensive at times. Test cricket will always need and reward the obdurate batter. But overall, a little bit more freedom and relaxation, a little more of the current optimism, would have been a breath of fresh air. After all, a test match was and is only a game. And even then, it's vital for leaders to beware of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. A gloomy litany of criticism and restriction does nothing to motivate the players. Whatever happens, let's all of us, players, ex-players and supporters, enjoy the moment. I give the last word to Bairstow. It's not the finished article. Everyone is still learning, but there isn't anything we can't do. Thank you so much for tuning in to our Prospect Lives podcast. Listen out to hear more from our family of writers and tune into our regular podcast, The Prospect Podcast, every Wednesday. If you've enjoyed hearing from our wonderful Lives columnists, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of Prospect from the newsstand now. Or go to the website where you can read writing from Rose Tremaine, Malcolm Rifkin, Sam Freeman, David Hare, and many, many more. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next time.